The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Peter chapter 4, in just a few moments. If you're familiar with the book of 1 Peter at all, you know that it is a book about suffering. We've been going through a series on Sunday evenings on 1 Peter, and it really is a a book about joy in suffering. Despite its grim theme, it's not a book of sadness. Rather, it's a book of hope, a book of joy. And it's such an incredible thing that as we look at what Peter's talking about and what he's preparing the folks that he's speaking to to go through, that he's able to speak about it with such a hopeful attitude, with so much joy. But he does. If you've been here at Maple City for any time at all, you know that Suffering seems to be a reoccurring theme here, something that's spoken quite often about from the pulpit, and that's not by accident. The truth is, it's a reoccurring theme in the the Word of God. Pastor and I both speak, uh, preach expositorily. We go through one book at a time, and so when we come to the subject of suffering again and again and again, it's because it's in the Word of God again and again and again. I believe it is the duty of pastors to prepare their people for suffering not just because we have nothing better to do. I think it's the duty of pastor to prepare people for suffering because suffering is common to us all. And what a tragedy it would be for us to enter into a period of suffering, especially if it's a period of suffering that's brought on by our relationship with Christ and our faith, and not expect it, and not know that this is, this is God's plan for us, and we should expect suffering like that to come in our lives. What a tragedy it would be if we come into this period of suffering and we start to, to question God and question his goodness and, and question his plan and is he really in control. Uh, if we go through the word of God, we see very clearly that, yes, God is in control. And yes, he has a plan for suffering and his children will endure suffering throughout their lives. And at times, it will be caused by the fact that we've tried to do right. That's what we're going to be speaking about this morning. I believe there are many times that we think, now we would never say it out loud, but we think that because we come to church and because we try and help our neighbors and because we try and generally be moral people, that good things ought to happen to us. That we ought to be able to go through life on kind of like a, a smooth path where we don't experience a lot of the suffering that you know the sinful world experiences. That we should be able to just get, kind of get by because we're God's children and, and no doubt we're pleasing him and so we should just have a great life, an easy life. We would never say that, but I think we still have that thought quite often. While the truth is, there is a blessing in obedience to God. We don't want to just just quickly pass by and say, no, if you're a child of God, your life is going to suck. It's, It's not the case, all right? There is a blessing in obedience to God. Sin can have devastating consequences at times, and when we obey God, we seem to be able to avoid some of those consequences. Um, The wisdom of the Bible and the commands of the Bible are given for our good, and the general principle of the Bible is that when we obey God's wisdom and we obey God's plan, that blessings come our way. Now, that's not always the case, but that is a general principle we see in the Bible. On top of that, there is no greater joy than knowing and walking with the Lord Jesus Christ every day. And so there is a blessing in obedience to God. As we walk with Christ every day, there's this source of joy that is impossible to recognize or understand 
until you've done it. But when you know every day you're walking with the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, that he is pleased with you, that, that you're in fellowship with him, there is a joy in that that's, that's not found elsewhere. Peter helps us to understand, though, that we follow and serve a crucified Lord. That God has a purpose and plan for suffering in our lives, and that we must be prepared to face suffering in a way that brings him glory. I want to give you the historical context of this book, because I think it's helpful as we get into the passage we'll be in um, this morning. At the age of 17, a man named Nero was made the emperor of Rome. It's the youngest emperor ever to take the throne. And this was in AD 54, and for the first few years of his reign, Nero was very good at listening to the counselors that his predecessors had put in his life. Unfortunately, eventually he he became more proud, more arrogant. He loved to build things. Uh, His mother was kind of getting his way, so he had her killed. He became this kind of monster of a man. And so initially during his reign, Christians didn't experience more suffering than they had previously. Nero became the emperor, and we know Nero as this immoral monster who, who killed Christians, but that wasn't the case at the very beginning. During his early years, he did heed the advice of his counselors. So prior to AD 64, the persecution of Christians throughout Rome was relatively less severe and localized. It's important for us to understand that because sometimes we look back at the early church and we might assume that that they experienced this awful, terrible persecution all the time everywhere, and that isn't the case. What they experienced was more equivalent to ostracism, right? Maybe in your family, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be accepted in your family more. Maybe your business would suffer some. But as far as the amount of physical persecution happening in Rome, it wasn't a great deal. Every once in a while, localized persecution happened. We see that recorded in the book of Acts a few times. But for the most part, it was, it was just a general disdain for Christians that Rome had. People would look down on them. Why? Because the Christians would not serve their gods, So it had nothing to do with what Christians believed. It was fine for Christians to believe that Jesus was God. It was fine to worship him, as long as you continue to worship all of their gods as well. We see almost the same kind of attitude in our culture today, don't we? That as long as Christians are willing to worship at the same gods that our culture worships at, then sure, we can attach Jesus to our life as well. But as soon as Jesus is the one God, the only God, and that, that every day all will stand before him. And as soon as we take out universalism and become exclusive like Christ was, then our culture has trouble with us. And so that's the, the situation that they're in. Peter wrote the book of First Peter in about AD 62 to 63. So about a year or two before the event that you might know of as the fire of Rome. There's an incredible fire in Rome. Now, as I said, Nero loved to build things. And he had a problem because in Rome, there was a lot of area of land that was being used by poorer people, and it just didn't have beautiful, nice buildings on it. And he had this vision of Rome where just everything was gorgeous and beautiful, and there were stadiums and libraries and, and things everywhere. And this land was being occupied, and so he had to find a way to get people off the land. And so historians, a lot of historians believe that he started this fire in order to rectify this problem, and then they have, they have um, records of him singing and playing instruments while the fire burned in Rome for five days. 
After the fire, people started to say, you know what, I think it might have been Nero that started the fire. And so people started to kind of turn against him a little bit. Well, what he did to fix that is what every corrupt politician does, he, he blamed the Christians. Right? It, was, it was the Christians' fault. They're the ones that started the fire. And so now all of a sudden, the people who already dislike Christians have a reason to hate them and a reason to lash out against them. Nero led the way in this regard. He had Christians um, burned at the stake. He had them um, dipped in oil and placed in his gardens as candles to light up his gardens at night. Um, He would dress them up in uh, animals' clothes and, and have people come and watch them being fed to wild animals. He was just a brutal, terrible man. And what Peter is doing in this book, I believe, is he's speaking to people who are enduring a measure of suffering. Right? Their suffering is relatively less severe than it might be in the future, but there's still some suffering. And he's preparing them for this great deal of suffering that's ahead. And I think God does this for us, and I thank God that he prepares us for suffering like he does. And so let's take a look at, at the book of 1 Peter. Just really quickly, let's, let's see what Peter's already said about suffering. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, Peter kind of begins the letter with this note. He says, Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. So he begins and he says, you can greatly rejoice, but know that there's going to come a time where you're going to go through some heaviness, some some temptations or some trials or some difficulty or some suffering that is is manifold. It's it's varied and it's great. 1 Peter 2, verse 19 says, For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. This is a thankworthy or a praiseworthy thing. This is a positive thing when Christians suffer wrongfully, suffering for something that they didn't deserve to suffer for. Verse 20 continues, says, When you, when you do well and suffer for it, You take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. See, God is not surprised by suffering. In fact, he puts suffering in our path. He allows suffering to come into our lives. And he expects us to take it patiently. Even when we're suffering for doing well, he says, take it patiently because this is acceptable with God. Verse 21 says, For even hereunto you were called. So you were called to this suffering. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. And this really is the message of 1 Peter. Christ suffered for you. He died for you. Because of what he's done for you, there is heaven on the other side of this life. So in this life, prepare yourself for suffering. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 says, but, if, but and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, Happy are ye. The word happy is blessed. And so if you're suffering for righteousness sake, you're blessed. Verse 17. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for doing well than for evil doing. You get the picture of what Peter's doing here in, in the book of 1 Peter. He's preparing for the people to suffer for doing right. In 1 Peter 4 verse 1, he says, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Peter helps us to understand 
that we follow a crucified Lord, that our God has a plan and a purpose for suffering in our lives, and that we must be prepared to suffer in a way that glorifies God. Let's get into our text in verse number 12. Peter writes, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. He begins, he says, Beloved, brothers and sisters, it is not strange, it is not surprising, it is not weird, it is not unexpected when you are put through a fiery trial. Now, what is a fiery trial? (laughs) I just picture it, you take a trial and you light it up. It becomes hot and uncomfortable and, and, and worse. And so he says, when you go through these trials that are just awful, that are terrible, don't be surprised. Don't think that it's a strange thing that you're going through. As we read, we will notice that this particular trial that he's speaking about is a trial that is a result of the believer's faith. It is persecution because they're following Christ. And so he says, I love you, beloved. Right? You can see his, his passion for these people and his care for these people as he says, and I don't want you to be surprised when persecution comes. Don't be surprised when your faith does not garner you praise. I think we can become very protected in our Christian bubbles. I think it's very possible to be a Christian in our culture and to attend church and to be in, in the fellowship of the, the church body throughout the week and to have our, our saved spouses at home, hopefully be in a Christian home, and then go off to work. And, and it seems like maybe at work is the only time that we experience any taste of, of the world. And some places you work at might be cordial, and they might be kind, and, and so you don't experience problems there. And some places aren't. Sometimes people go to work here, and it's, it's difficult for them. But I, I think that sometimes we get this picture of the world where yeah, everybody's pretty much okay with Christianity, that that Christ is generally accepted by people, maybe not as their Savior, not as the Lord, but they're certainly willing to accept him as this this wonderful teacher who taught good things and and then accept you as one of his followers. But throughout history, since the inception of the church, that hasn't really been the case. And the fact that it has been the case somewhat in North America is an anomaly when it comes to the world. I mean, throughout the course of the world, this just hasn't been the case. And so we, we are living in an interesting time, but I think we're living in a time that's starting to kind of go back to the normal. Right? And I'm sure you've sensed that shift in our culture where um, Christianity is no longer something that people are proud of. That going to church is not something that's, that's just expected of all of, our, all of our politicians and all of our leaders. It's more of something that maybe is looked down upon. And a lot of the teachings of the church are now being ridiculed by the people. And, and they're being demonized. The, the things that we believe in, that the Bible teaches, are being demonized by the world around us. And, and can I tell you something? We're coming to a point where we should be expecting more significant suffering as a church, as believers. Because what's going to happen in, in our culture is eventually they're going to determine that what we're doing is immoral fully, completely immoral, and not just in their minds, but on paper, in the laws. And as soon as that happens, they'll have the right to inflict physical pain and suffering, difficulty in our lives, as a result of what we believe. 
I don't know how far away that is. I know that that's just the direction it's going. And every small step is, it's not just small steps about bathrooms, right? It's steps about things that are going to lead to this place where holding Christian beliefs is an immoral thing to do and punishable. And so we should be expecting this. So we should be careful not to believe that our bubble is representative of the world. Darkness does not respond well to light when confronted with it. So rather than avoiding, maybe it's a good idea for us already to start just trying to engage our culture with, as salt and light and to reach out to people and to have conversations and to, to, to try purposefully not to just always remain in this bubble. Verse number 13. Don't think it's strange, verse 12. He says, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you shall be glad with exceeding joy. Don't be surprised. Okay, so what do I do? If I don't think it's strange, what, how do I respond? It's obvious. You rejoice. It's not obvious, but it seems to Peter that it is obvious, right? How do you respond when you suffer? Well, he says you rejoice. Why? Because you're partaking in the sufferings of Christ. You're, a part, you're entering into the sufferings that he went through. You're, you're entering into suffering with him. This is, this is actually a wonderful thing when you understand who the Lord is and what he's done for you, that he suffered for you, and now you get the honor and the privilege of suffering for the King of kings and Lord of lords the same way that he suffered. It's, it's an incredible thing. And so he says we ought to rejoice. Paul says something strange in Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul lists all of the wonderful attributes about him, all of his greatest accomplishments. And the Apostle Paul, before he became a Christian, he had a lot of accomplishments. He was an incredible man. And then he gets to verse 8 in Philippians 3, and he says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. As on he says in verse 10, that I, may, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. What Paul says, he says, everything that I held dear, everything that I thought was so wonderful about me, I count those things as dung. I count them as, as garbage, as refuse. I mean, they're, they're worth nothing to me. What I want is to know Christ. What I want is to know the power of his resurrection. What I want is to know the fellowship of his suffering. This is Paul saying he wants to know Christ, but he recognizes that to, to know Christ, to, to really know Christ, you need to be You need to know the power of his resurrection, yes. You need to know the fellowship of his sufferings. And so as we enter into sufferings for Christ, we enter into a very unique and special relationship with him. And so it is a cause for rejoicing. We don't suffer, we don't rejoice because suffering is enjoyable. We rejoice because it allows us to know Christ better. And back in the book of Philippians, um, Paul spoke about this day that would be coming. And he said in Philippians 2.10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, 
and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What he's saying is someday your suffering will, will end. Someday all creatures everywhere will recognize Christ for who he is. And when Peter says in verse 13, he says, you rejoice that you're partakers of Christ's suffering. When his glory shall be revealed, you will be glad and exceeding joy. I can promise you that on this day, you will not, you will not wish that you had chosen not to suffer. You will be sad that you didn't have an opportunity to suffer more often for the cause of Christ. On that day, I mean, that, you think about this life, guys. That's what matters, isn't it? Like, really, if, if eternity is real, if what we're saying is true, and someday Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and someday we live forever with him, and we have this one short life, I feel like it's pretty obvious when you think of it that way to say, yeah, if I can suffer for Christ in this life, in this short time, this temporary type of suffering, then I should do it because it's, it's beneficial for eternity. Because someday Christ comes. And so we can rejoice even though it sounds really strange to do that. Verse 14 says, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, if you're insulted or reviled for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. So if you go through a time and you have people making fun of you and people insulting you and people hating you for the name of Christ, you are happy, you are blessed. It's an interesting word he uses here because the word for blessed is makar, and he uses the word makarios, which is supremely blessed. It's, it's kind of a beautiful version of the word blessed. You are supremely blessed when you have people who are reproaching you for the name of Christ. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God is resting upon you. And so you have folks in this world that are going to speak evil of you and are going to speak evil of God. It is your job as a believer in Christ to be reproached and then to glorify God as as that occurs. Verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Peter says, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're suffering as a Christian. Just because you're suffering doesn't mean the suffering is caused as a result of your faith. In fact, he wants to make it very clear that if you're a Christian, you ought not to suffer for being a murderer, seems obvious, a thief, Okay, an evildoer, it's literally just a bad doer, a doer of bad things, so don't suffer for doing bad things. And then he says a busybody, which is kind of just like an annoying person that's putting their head where it doesn't belong. Don't suffer for bad things. I mean, right, I think sometimes we do this. I saw a video on YouTube once where this, this guy who's a pastor, and he was, um, he, he was writing on YouTube that he was enduring this terrible suffering at the hands of the guards uh, the crossing guards at a border. And so you watch the video, and the guy is refusing to do everything that the crossing guards tell him to do. And they're just asking him to get out of the vehicle because he's got to go into the, the thing. And so eventually they break the window and tase him. <laughs> and, 
And so the video ends with him like screaming and wailing in pain. And, and I, I watched that video. I'm like, you're claiming to be suffering as a Christian. That's not what that is. You're suffering because you're just not doing what you should be doing. Right? I think sometimes we like to blame our suffering. You know, we're just, be kind, be loving. Don't be, even when we're giving truth, even when we're speaking truth to people, we're told to speak truth in love. So we ought not just deliver messages in ways that we know are going to purposefully anger people. I recognize that the gospel, it, it does anger people. I mean, the gospel is that we're sinners with no hope on our own and that Christ died for us. And so that, it's offensive. But we don't need to be offensive in the way we deliver that message. And so he says, don't, don't just suffer and think that you're suffering as a Christian. No, if you're going to suffer, suffer as a Christ follower, as a disciple of Christ, being like Christ. And then Peter, in verses 17 and 18, gives us two verses that they almost seem out of place here. He says, For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if at first it begins with us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Almost seems out of place. But I believe the judgment that Peter's speaking about here is the fiery trials that believers are sometimes called to endure. And so he's saying, if, if there's judgment, if there's trials and there's suffering that's going to begin at the household of God, if it's beginning here, what are, what's going to be the end of those who, who don't obey the gospel, who don't believe the gospel? What is the end for those who are part of that rejection and the um, persecution and the martyring of Christians? What's the end for those folks? And it, it's just a reminder for us as believers to say, yes, we, we are called to suffer for a time, but our suffering will not compare with the suffering of rejection and death. If you're somebody who is, you're sitting on the fence and you think, you know what, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I know that if I follow Christ, it's going to cost me something. Then you're absolutely right. Following Christ will cost you something. Christ told us that we should count the cost. But at the same time, what is the cost of not following Christ? See, there might be some suffering here for us that's temporary. But the most terrifying verses in the Bible outline the suffering that he's speaking about that will be for those who obey not the gospel of God. In Mark chapter 9, verse 3, Jesus says this, If thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that will never be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. That's a terrifying verse. Cut your hand off if that's what's keeping you out of heaven. Now it's not. It's not your hand. right? It's your heart. But if it was your hand, then cut your hand off because it's better to go through this life with that kind of suffering than it is for you to spend eternity in a place where the fire is not quenched and the worm dies not. Hebrews 9.27 says, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So there is a judgment for all people. 
all men, all women will die, and all men and all women will, will stand before the judgment of God. Revelation chapter 20, verses 13 to 15. See, the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It is time that judgment begins at the house of God. But if it begins here, what is judgment going to be like? What is suffering going to be like for those who reject the gospel, who reject forgiveness, who reject the sacrifice of Christ? And the answer is, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be terrifying. He says, if the righteous are scarcely saved, and the word scarcely there means just with difficulty. So if there is difficulty involved in this life as we march toward that final salvation, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? If this is you this morning, I don't know your heart, but if if you're the person that just, you've rejected the gospel of God, um, I encourage you to think about eternal life. I encourage you to think about this this judgment that's coming. This is not something that we are rejoicing in. This is the truth that the most loving man, the God-man, spoke about very often during his life. He spoke about the reality of, of eternal punishment. And we would be foolish to not warn you of that. If you don't know Christ, I beg you today, I plead with you today to trust him. He died for you. He's given his life for you. And now he says, Who shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead, you'll be saved. This is the, the promise of Scripture. This is the gift that he's given us. So we must trust him. The final verse of 1 Peter chapter 4 is almost a summary for what we've, all, what we've spoken about, but it's, it's almost a summary for the entire book. It's a great way to encapsulate the book of 1 Peter. He says, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. He says, if you are a person who is suffering and you're in the will of God, you're suffering for the will of God, then commit the keeping of your souls. Commit who you are, everything about you. Commit yourself to the Lord because you know he's a faithful creator. And I wonder, why does he use the word creator, not the word father or friend? Why is he not just a faithful friend? And I think he does that because God as a creator is sovereign. Okay, so just, just as a father, that's not the first word that comes to our mind that attaches to creator, but knowing that God is in control and that he's allowing you to go through this suffering. And so we can commit ourselves to God knowing that he's sovereign, knowing that he's in control, knowing that he has a plan for this. So we commit ourselves to God, even in the midst of, of awful suffering, even when we suffer for, what, for doing right, even when we suffer for um, standing for Christ. In fact, expect suffering for those things. May we commit ourselves to God, knowing that he does all things well, knowing that he is a faithful creator. 
This entire passage presents a view of suffering that I think is foreign to a lot of us. It is foreign to think of suffering, suffering for doing right, as something to rejoice over. See, we tend to think in terms of the here and now. How something affects me now, this moment, determines whether it is a good thing or a bad thing. If it's painful, it's bad. If it it makes me feel good, then it's obviously a good thing. But this view of suffering and this view of the world is so much different than that. It's so much bigger than that. Here, Peter presents a view of suffering that suffering is your chance to grow closer to your Savior. It is a chance to serve your Savior. It is a chance to bring glory to your God. It's a chance to lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. These are all positive things. Your suffering is is an opportunity to rest more fully in the faithful arms of God. We've seen brothers and sisters at our church endure suffering in incredible ways. Right, haven't we? We've, we've seen folks go through suffering, and I'm just so encouraged and, and um, I don't know, impressed, but I don't know if that's the right word, just by the way that they trust God as they go through that suffering. It is an incredible thing to have the people of God commit their souls to, a faith, to our faithful creator in the midst of suffering. There is nothing like the godly suffering of those who are being persecuted for the gospel. The second century church father, Tertullian, wrote that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What he was saying is, as as the martyrs are killed, their blood is spilt, and the church grows. It is the seed, and it bears fruit. And really, that's what was happening in the church for the first three centuries. We see this process of the church being persecuted, and it being purified, and it bearing a great deal of fruit. And so suffering, as much as we don't want to endure it, it's usually not bad for us. It it never has to be bad for us, though it hurts. We went to the Taylor for the Gospel conference uh, about a month ago now, and it was reminded over and over again of the countless martyrs who died during the Protestant Reformation. And they died for what we believe. They died for their belief in Scripture alone, that salvation is by faith alone, that it's through Christ alone, that it's by grace alone, and that it's for the glory of God alone. They're suffering for those things. And being killed for those things. Um, And the death of martyrs, what was interesting during this time, is that as they put one martyr up after another after another, it had the opposite effect on the people than what they expected. See, they expected to be able to put people up and then scare them away from Christianity. And it certainly did that to some. But what happened so often is that you would put people up to be killed and you would see this hope and this joy and this faith as they quoted scripture as they're burning. I mean, like just countless stories like this, where the people watching, they, they didn't, they're no longer cheering, they're no longer happy to see this. They were just in awe of the strength that these people had as they faced this difficulty and this pain. Believers went to their deaths with scripture on their tongue and hope in their hearts. And that is something that can inspire strength in people. A woman named Helen Sturk was arrested in Scotland in 1544. 
she was brought with her husband and four other men to be killed on January the 26th. The men were charged with crimes like the possession and or reading, reading of a vernacular editions of scripture. In other words, they were charged with having a Bible in their own language and reading it. Helen's crime was a little bit different than that. Now, there, there was another man that was charged with disrupting the preaching of the, the friar or the priest. And I think that would be just funny. Um, but Helen's crime was different. Helen was giving birth, and while she was giving birth, she was told by those around her to call upon Mary for strength, and she wouldn't do it. And she called directly upon God, and, and when she was questioned, she said, I have direct access to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And she went on to say that Mary was no different than her, that Mary was a sinner in need of salvation. They didn't like that. And so they decided that as a result of this breaking of the law, this, this what they considered a, a egregious sin, she would be killed. And so those four men were brought up and they were hung on the gallows. And she was able to say um, goodbye to her husband, but she didn't say goodbye. She said, I'll, I'll see you soon in the kingdom of God. Uh, and it was just the, I mean, I, I know that we're getting a story from the Fox's Book of Martyrs, so I, don't, I didn't get to see it happen. But some of the things that, just the words that they said to one another are just beautiful. So she says, I'll see you soon in the kingdom of heaven. And then they take her and they bring her to an icy cold river. They, they fit her up with a weight. She nurses her child for the last time and then gives her child to her friend. And then she is tossed into the river. Hundreds of stories like this. Hundreds of stories of people suffering for Christ and suffering well and really believing what we, what we gather here to learn about and, and rejoice in. What would Peter have us do? In today, what, what would Peter have us do? What do, you think, what do you think the message here is for us? Well, Peter was speaking to people who were suffering but the suffering that's going on in modern-day Turkey and the suffering going on in Iraq and Iran and Somalia and North Korea and, and all those places, it was greater. It's greater than the suffering that these people were experiencing at this time. Their suffering, it might be worse than ours, but not, not a whole lot worse than ours. I mean, it's kind of, they're just a little bit further along the progression. But very, very soon, they're going to be entering in a time where there is very serious suffering ahead. What I think Peter wants us to do is to be prepared for suffering and not to be surprised by it. I think he wants us to dig our heels in, know truth, walk with Christ, and when suffering comes, be ready. One writer said, if they were astonished at the suffering that occurred, they may have been overwhelmed, concluding that God did not love them, an advance warning of suffering helps the readers to be prepared for suffering so that their faith is not threatened when difficulties arise. So we must be ready and we must be bold in our suffering. We must not be ashamed of the gospel. We must be like the disciples who in Acts chapter 5 were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. 
We must be willing to suffer for Christ, but ensure that we're not suffering for sin. As you suffer, keep trusting God as your faithful creator. This book has been challenging for me. Because as I've gone through the book, I've constantly looked at my life and said, where am I suffering for Christ? And I don't think that it's our duty to go out and look for suffering and and try and cause it somehow to happen to us. But I think we ought to be living in a way that at some point, all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so at some point, we ought to be candidates for true suffering. I hope that the message this morning prepares you for that. I hope it gives you a better perspective on suffering in this life when we compare that to eternity. Let's pray.